Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Wurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Madeline Black, an international speaker, psychotherapist, and the author of the new book called Unbroken, One Woman's Journey to Rebuild a Life Shattered by Violence. Madeline grew up in London in the late 1970s and was brutally sexually assaulted at the age of 13 by two American teenagers. She lived in a state of shock and self-loathing as a result of the assault, and it took years of struggle to confront her painful memories and begin to undo the damage. In 2014, after coming to terms with how the trauma had shaped her life, she shared her story publicly for the first time. In her new book, Unbroken, Madeline shares her journey of profound trauma and her discovery that our lives are not defined by what knocks us down, but are defined by how we get back up. I am honored Madeline has taken time to share her journey of profound courage with Get Up Nation. Madeline, welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Ben. And first, I want to congratulate you on completing your TED speech in Glasgow called Unbroken, Speaking the Unspeakable. That was a couple days ago, yes, right? I did. That was just on Friday, which is why my, I'm a bit all over the place at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. That's, that's an amazing accomplishment. I look forward to seeing that uh, when that gets released. And as we get into it here, Madeline, I just want to express my profound respect and admiration for who you are and how you have lived your life. It's an honor to have you on Get Up Nation sharing your journey of resilience at this point, I want to make sure listeners are aware that we're going to be discussing realities in our world which may not be appropriate for children to hear. And for survivors of exploitation, I want to ensure that you practice self-care. Should you listen to this in order to ensure your own health, make sure you are getting any help you need. And if you need to take breaks during listening to this podcast episode, please do so. Madeline, to help my listeners understand the depth and power of your bravery, they need to understand some of what happened to you as a child. If it's okay with you, will you share sure. some of what happened to you when you were 13 years old? Well, to cut a very 
very long story short, when I was 13, I was gang raped by two young teenagers. No easy way to say it, so I just say it how it is. My friend's mum was away, and both of us just lied about where we were staying, and we went back to the empty flat. And mm. so many of my friends said, you know, this was obviously before mobile phones or whatever. And our parents didn't know where we were half the time, and they said, oh, well, we did the same thing, but I was just... Very bad luck that night. It was, a, it was a very brutal assault. You were tied to a radiator. You were burned with cigarettes, stabbed, sexually assaulted, had a knife held to your throat. The men who assaulted you threatened to kill you if you told anyone about the assault. And at that point, you had no reason not to believe them. Right after yeah, the, I, I really believed them. I believed that one of them was more than capable of killing me. And, uh, yeah, being 13 and just the situation, I just decided just to keep quiet about it and not not to speak out because I really believed it. Silence followed you and your friend, cleaned up the room where the assault happened. You went home and the next day you went to school. Will you share some of that process afterward of, of what you experienced? Well, you know, when we say I went back to school as if nothing had happened, it's not really true because I know now, you know, what we can't voice, what we can't speak about, it's got to come out some way. So it really leaked out. I mean, as you said already, I developed an eating disorder, I numbed out completely, so I just was really, like, I put myself in the deep freeze. I became very suicidal. I attempted suicide. Just before my 14th birthday, I had three months in a children's psychiatric ward. I used anything, drugs, alcohol, just to numb out. I just really, you know, I didn't really have many memories from that night. It took me a long time to get the memories back, but I just was left feeling so worthless, and I just thought I was dirty and contaminated. So it was years and years of just self-loathing, really, from that night. A lot of the messages that you received at that point were victim-blaming, victim-shaming. What we pick up from society, you know, well, I had lied about where I was staying. I'd met boys. I'd bought alcohol, all the things that your parents say not to do, I had done. So I assumed I had brought it on myself. It wasn't necessarily people telling me that. I'd come to that decision myself. Hmm. Okay. Because it's so, even then, the late 1970s, and still to this day, we have so much rape culture and victim-blaming messages around us all the time and everywhere. It took you three years to get to the point where you shared what happened to you. Will you share about the note you left for your parents? Yeah, so I was sneaking in late one morning, and my mum is waiting for me. Because when I got released from hospital, my behaviour didn't really get any better. I just actually partied harder, I think, and used more drugs and alcohol. So I'm sneaking in late one morning and she's just waiting and she's really, really angry. And she said, you know, don't you realize what the danger you're putting yourself and anything could happen to you? But I couldn't tell her because my voice had disappeared. And then I just wrote this little note, which I left on my pillow, just briefly outlining the details. And when I came back from school, my parents asked me if it was true. And I said, yes. And so they called my friend who was involved, but she said it hadn't happened like it had. They were nice boys. They were both sons of diplomats. And I'd got it wrong. So I felt very betrayed in that moment. My dad was still very keen to go to the police. My mum was very, very quiet. And it took me many, many years to understand my mum's silence. But in that moment, I thought, well, my friend has betrayed me and my mum doesn't believe me. And it turns out that your mum had had an awful experience herself. Yeah, many, many years later, even long after my dad had died, they had five kids together and she was never able to tell him that as an eight-year-old girl, she was raped by her neighbor when she was growing up. My grandma would send her to play with her friend. My mum would refuse and she said, don't be rude, go and play with your friend. And 
she would be assaulted by this man mm. who was eventually found guilty. He was also abusing his daughters. But whilst he was in prison, my mum's family moved away and they never spoke about it again. Mm. So when I'm telling her what happened to me, it's not that she didn't believe me. She's just getting confronted by her own trauma and she couldn't say anything because my dad never knew. So, yeah, I can look back now, I can understand. But at the time, when I was just 16, I just thought she doesn't believe me. Hmm. It was decided that you would leave the town where the assault happened and you went to Israel. Will you share some of that process? Yeah, well, I think my behavior was just getting really bad. I'm rebelling and I was using a lot of drugs and my mum and dad thought it'd be a good idea to get away for a while. We laugh about it now because the kibbutz I went on grew grass everywhere, so it's quite <laughs> funny. <laughs> anyway, at the time it was the best thing they ever did because about four weeks before the end, I met my husband of now, like 35 years ago we met when I was just 17. So it was, it was really really a good contrast because it was just so contrastingly different to my life in London and people didn't have to know my story. I could push it even further away from my consciousness and squash it down. Still convincing myself that I was covering it up, but actually, you know, when I look back now, my behavior it was still leaking out of me. It baffled you or puzzled you that he was showing love to you when you were having difficulty accepting yourself. Will you share a little bit yeah, about that I, process? Yeah, I would drive him mad, poor man. I would say, but why do you want to be with somebody like me? You know, you can have anyone. Because I really still then thought that I was just this worthless, pointless person. My self-esteem was so low. And he would just say, you know, that he just does. So really, I now know that love will always win over hate. I, I hated myself for so long. But he just being this grounded, normal kind of person who loved me, showed me that I was lovable, that I could give love back in return, and it really helped me to slowly learn to like myself and then even love myself one day. See, love is always going to win. Whether that's love from someone else or love of yourself or loving something, it's, it's always going to win over hate. Eight years into your marriage, at the beginning, you had told him clearly, I do not want to have children. And eight years into your marriage, yep. that changed for you. Yeah, so I am a Londoner who loves the sunshine. I don't know why I live in Scotland, because there's not much <laughs> sunshine around. But we would take all of our annual leave and go away every winter somewhere, warm and exotic. And we were in Thailand, and I can remember the exact moment. We were walking on a beach. It had been about three, four weeks away and he turned to me and asked me how about starting a family. We'd been married for a couple of years, two, three years. And I was all ready to say no. But I thought, you know, if I never become a mum, then they've won. I'm going to still be handing them all my power and control over me. And I thought, I don't want that anymore. So it was there and then I decided that I would come up with my plan that I call my best revenge. I would be determined to not only become a mum, but to live my life as best as I could, just refusing to be identified by what had happened to me and have three girls. <laughs> when one of your children turned 13, that's when the intense return of memories, flashbacks and nightmares yeah. happened. Yeah. And, that's, you know, I really thought that motherhood had healed me. I thought that was okay. But I, I look back now and I, I see we can convince ourselves of anything. But, yes, when Anna, my eldest daughter, became the same age that I was, I was also studying psychotherapy. I was doing tons of personal development. So things were pressing on me, I suppose you could say. But, yet yeah, all the memories, nightmares, flashbacks came back. And I really thought that I was going mad because for years I'd worked at Women's Aid, 14 years, six years 
at rape crisis. I was studying now as a counsellor psychotherapist. And I thought, you know, I've just heard people's stories. This hasn't really happened to me. I was so caught in my denial. I didn't want to believe all the details. But the more I denied the details, the more they would come back in the day, in, in my nightmares, in my dream state. So after about three years, I had to find a way to go, okay, I am alive. They didn't kill me. This did happen. I know now, which obviously I thought for a long time, that uh, it's not a reflection of me. I used to think that if people found out that they would be disgusted, like I was disgusted by what had happened to me, that somehow as if this was a reflection of me. But I know now it was never my fault. It's never anyone's fault. But the shame attached to such an intimate crime, it takes a long time to shift. Will you share a little bit how, during the salt, you experienced the presence of a Tibetan monk? Sure. So I never used to speak about this because I thought if people, I tell people this, then they would think I was mad as well. But the same with my memories when I was caught up in my denying. He appeared to me when the memories were returning. There was one point where things got very violent and they were trying to set me on fire, set my hair on fire. And when my memories came back, there was this young Tibetan monk by my side, and he is just blowing the flame out from the lighter every time the guy, the worst one, tries to set me hit my hair on fire. He just blows out the lighter. It happens three times. And then he just obviously decides to change his mind because the lighter he thought wasn't working. And I thought when this happened, I thought, oh, if I tell my therapist this, he's going to really think I'm mad. He's going to send me straight back to a psychiatric ward and he'll lock me up and throw the key away. But the more I resisted his memory, because I know now what we resist persists, you know, he just kept coming back to me and I would feel his presence and see him in the day and I would hear him tell me, like you told me that night, it's okay, you're going to be all right, they're not going to kill you. And I thought, I have to say something because it was just too much in my mind. And when I told him, he said, oh, yeah, that can happen. I went, what do you mean? And he said, but you were so close to being killed that night. that You were just taken to another dimension. You just saw your protector. And it still, to be honest, doesn't make that much sense to me. But I know if I deny it then that's, the denial was hurting my mind more than actually accepting it. So if I have to accept all that they've done to me, I have to accept him as well. The two kind of are linked, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And that, that powerful acceptance makes a world of difference. In you talked about how you did not want to live a life of fear. You didn't want to merely exist. So you made that powerful decision to accept these things that had happened to you. Like I said, it was backwards and forwards in my head with not wanting to believe it. And I was causing myself now more disruption. It wasn't actually what happened to me. It wasn't the pictures. It was what I was doing with the information that I got. And I realized, you know, really, it's not what happens to us. It's what we do with it that really matters. And once I learned to accept the facts and realized I'm not my body, you know, I'm not the things that were done to me. Yes, without a doubt, this has shaped my life, this event. But we're not our events. We're all so much more than, than one night or one event. It's a bit of a paradox, really. But that really just helped me to become more peaceful inside. And the acceptance has just let me let it all go, if that makes sense. Sure. And for a large portion of your life, you wanted the men who assaulted you to suffer for what they had done. Your therapist said something which initially upset you, but led to a, a greater understanding. Will you share some about the significance of this exchange? Yeah, so it was really just a few weeks before the end of my three years of therapy with him, he suggested to me that 
that these guys maybe weren't born rapists. And I was just so angry with him. I couldn't believe that what I was hearing because, I, as you said, I fantasized in my revenge days when I was full of hate and, re and revenge, anger, that somebody would do the same to them so they would understand, you know, what the impact of rape does. But he planted an idea in my head and I, then I found myself just really full of inquiry. I wanted to understand how could two guys, not much older than me, know to be so violent towards another human being. And then it just became this journey of inquiry. And somehow, out of nowhere, I didn't intend to, but I felt compassion in my heart towards them because I thought, well, I've done the best job that I can do all my life and I'm living it from, a, I hope, an alive place. But they have to live with what they've done to me and I, I can't imagine that will be easy. And so I call myself an accidental forgiver, but forgiveness came in. And I realized if I did hold on to all that anger and hurt and revenge, they wouldn't have any idea. It was only going to hurt me and my husband and my kids that I struggled to have for years. So, yeah, forgiveness for me was actually really nothing to do about them. It was more to do with me. It was really an act of self-love, totally self-empowering, but it helped me cut any connections that stopped my growth and tied me to the past. Mm -hmm. really set me free, I guess, forgiveness. I suppose that's what you can say. It was my key to forgiveness, to freedom. Mm. You've described how for a long time you were just in your body, existing here, but not really here. You've described how when you allowed love and forgiveness to enter you, instead of being filled with hate, it created a reality where more of you was present and where you enjoy things more. Is that accurate? Absolutely. You know, I realized now before I spoke out or before I had acceptance, forgiveness, whatever you want to call it, it, it occupied so much space inside. So when I was able to accept it, knowing I couldn't change it and just let it go. It was what it was. It's like that space was then opened up even more, but then more of me has turned up. The more of me that was shut down or put into defrost or the more of me before this event happened. So yeah, it's been a very interesting journey. Hmm. And now you're speaking. You want to share that you're no longer ashamed. Why is it important for you to share your journey with others today? Well, you know, it was a somebody else that helped me find my voice and I really intend to pay that forward. I mean, as you mentioned at the start, I did my TEDx on Friday and that evening, so the audience was huge, it was 2,000 people, I've only ever spoken to about two or 300, so it was quite a few more than I'm used to, but that evening I had a head teacher contact me to say he was in the audience with some of his pupils. One of the girls, three minutes after I had spoken, one of his pupils turned to one of the teachers and said she had been raped three years ago. Mm. And he's now taken her to the police. They've reported it. They've invited me to the school to go meet her, which I'm going to do. And to me, that is all the evidence I need. If I've just reached that one girl after 2,000 people, that's my job done. So it's not really now what it can do for me. It's about what it can do for others. You know, when I was waiting in the wings to go on stage, I was so nervous. But once I got onto the stage and I stood on the famous red circle, I thought... This isn't about me talking, this is about who's listening now and what the words can do for other people, so that's why I speak out. Love it. So you've said that you want girls to grow up in a world free of sexism, where they do not feel they are hated by men, where there is no victim blaming, where it's just normal to be in a relationship with someone who loves you. How do we get there? What can we do today to make this a reality? Oh, it was a lot of work to do, really, isn't this? What we talked <laughs> earlier about victim blaming. 
blaming and victim shaming and uh, the culture that we live in. We, it's not just down to women. We need the really good men like yourselves to call out when they hear a guy having locker talk, whatever you want to call it, or if they see women getting harassed walking down the street, support your sisters. And it's, I think we need to start educating at a really, really young age, maybe even nursery level, about what respect looks like, what consent looks like, what a healthy relationship looks like. Really, it's about education and keeping this conversation alive, keeping it going, so, because it's not getting any better. The statistics are showing us rape and sexual abuse assault is still happening all over this planet. So we need to find a way to really educate people. You've said, if we choose to, we can get through anything that has happened to us. What specific message do you have for those who are grappling with the aftermath of an assault or overwhelming feelings of shame, guilt, and self-harm? I would say that it's never, ever the victim's fault, but I know it's very hard when you're caught up in shame to hear that because I've done it myself when I just hadn't gone out that night, if I hadn't lied, if I hadn't done this. So that's all self-blame, and it doesn't help when we have all the blame from society as well. But I would just say it's never, ever too late to find your voice. Find someone that will listen to you. It doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist, but to be listened to, to be heard and to be believed, there's nothing, nothing more powerful than that. And just really never give up. There's always, always, there's always hope. We can really, really get past this if with the right support and the right love and care. Madeline, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick sure. questions with me? Who are you thankful for today? Who am I thankful for? Well, I'm very thankful I met my husband when I did because I really believe that he was an angel sent to save me. Mm. I'm trying to think what would have happened if I hadn't met him. Mm. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for today, what are you thankful for today? I'm very grateful that I wasn't killed that night because life is for living and I love my life. Mm. How do you fuel the fire within you? how I fuel it, it kind of feels like it's self-fueling, it's just burning now, which is, which is why I think it's burning, because all the other stuff is out of the way, so it's been interesting to shift all that stuff and see what's underneath it all. What is one thing adversity taught you to value? Oh gosh, it's one thing, it's just that, yeah, that really life is for living, hmm. and to be grateful. Be grateful to have this life because it, before you know it, it's going to be gone. And what are you going to do? You're going to hold on to all that hurt, disappointment, or are you going to live your life? What are you doing today? You may have never thought you could. I'm speaking to you via <laughs> Glasgow over the phone. It's amazing these connections. But today, I guess in general, I never thought if you told me on Friday years ago one day I'd be standing on the stage speaking to two thousand people, sharing my most intimate details of the night that I was raped, I would never have believed that. Hmm. So uh, that is quite amazing when I've been reflecting over it the last few days. Think, gosh, it's been some journey. Hmm. And what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? Well, tomorrow I have been invited to speak at a networking meeting, which is made up of local businesses, and I have 10 minutes, so I've told the organizer that I'll just do my TEDx talk because it was 10 minutes. Well, I will be sharing a story of rape to a room full of businessmen, so it's going to be interesting. How can people learn more about you, your book, and your work? Sure, so my book is called Unbroken. 
you can get it on Amazon. Hopefully, I've just been found out we've got a contract to do an audio book, which I hope to narrate myself. So that's quite exciting. You can find me on social media. My website is madelineblack.co.uk. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all over the place. Madeline, it's an absolute honor to share your journey on this show. Thank you and your amazing family for all you have done for yourselves and for those who are suffering today. It's been an honor. Thank you. You're very welcome.